this narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are casually critical. Hello and welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I am your host, James Newton. And I'm Daniel Carpenter, your co-host. Now, in this grand voyage we have together in Casually Critical, we are going to wade eventually into some uncharted scary waters where there are spoilers lurking just below the surface. So uh, be on the lookout for that and uh, we'll, we'll give you a fair warning, our uh, handsome man up in the crow's nest is going to let us know whenever those spoilers emerge so just be on the lookout and that handsome man could be the face of james or it could be the face of me i can't really say which one is better but just know that that's coming i would say we're both equally handsome in in different ways you know how people say they have a a good face for radio i think we have horrible faces for radio we need to be seen (laughs) by the world that is the greatest backhanded compliment i think i've ever heard my entire life oh thank you thank you so daniel can you tell us a little bit about the sea beast a netflix original animated movie i'm surprised you want me to do that james because you were the one that recommended this but i'll do my best um the sea beast is a netflix original it's a netflix distributed animated film it's about uh a group of men and women aboard the inevitable which is uh, a hunting ship they hunt sea monsters big sea monsters this is set in kind of an 1800s inspired 17 1700s inspired world technology uh but basically there's a stowaway that shows up and things happen that's all i'll say on that james why did you want us to review this movie well, Daniel, I just had I had a feeling about this movie. I wasn't sure if it was a good feeling or a bad feeling, but the visuals were very strong and engaging whenever I first saw the trailers. Uh, and I was really hooked in by like, oh man, it's pirates, kind of. It's like safe pirates. Like you don't have to deal with the moral quandaries of being a pirate. You just are a pirate and you hunt big sea monsters, which are my favorite parts of pirate stories anyway. And then also... It just, it seemed like the cool character designs, set designs, uh, creature designs, all that stuff. I just really needed a palate cleanser after our Minions 2 Rise of Gru review. Mm. And I feel like this this movie did accomplish that uh, for me. It, it, it refreshed my palate. It made me remember why people make movies. Um, I have a lot more to say about that. But Daniel, I want to hear your initial thoughts. So tapping a little bit back into our Minions 2 Rise of Gru review. The reason we did not like that movie is because it exemplified, it was the apex of people saying, oh, well, that was fun. That was a good flick. For me, if you have taste and you think critically about what you watch, this is the wholesome and superior equivalent of that. That is you saying, you know what? That was a decent flick. And I'm not actually going to be upset at you. (laughs) Right. This is... This is a movie that, for the most part, doesn't really try to be too outside the box. They just say, hey, let, let's take these elements that have been done before and let's just do them as best as we possibly can. And they succeed, I think. It's so solid. The atmosphere is great. And they do something that, unfortunately, is so rare for kids' movies these days and animated movies these days, not that I would consider Sea Beast necessarily a kids' movie, yeah. But for movies in that genre, for movies in that vein, what they do is they actually take themselves seriously. They take their world seriously. They when a character says, "We're gonna go here, follow my orders," like it, it's taken seriously. It's not like, "Oh, someone's upset," you know. No, it's like. Yeah. No, this is serious. We're doing this, and it's a big deal, and you should pay attention. And it's it, I, I for that reason alone, I love it. <laughs> yeah, Daniel, I know you have strong feelings about 
characters and moments that take away from the tension of a scene. Like if there are any, you know, uh, I'm going to cite our Kung Fu Panda 2 review. I'm going to cite our Minions 2 Rise of Gru review. Both of our two reviews, actually. Mm. Uh, Daniel, you talk about how tension is extracted from a scene. The life is just sucked right out of it. The dramatic momentum. The momentum is stopped. Yeah. Whenever something goofy happens. And that is not the case with this movie. And there are there are competent characters. It's ama- There are actually competent characters that stay yeah. competent throughout. There's one character that doesn't stay competent throughout. No. Uh, and we can talk about that more later. Um, but it's 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 a good time, you guys. And most of you I know that are listening have Netflix. I think you should go give it a watch. Mm. Um, it's got some of the best animated action that I've seen in a really long time. Uh, just watching the main character, Jacob, just like running along the rails and slinging on ropes and climbing up and throwing spears and jumping. And it's really something. And and even for the more comedic scenes, uh, and I'm going to reference uh, one here vaguely involving a palm tree and a rope. The action is really, really fascinating. And I can't say much more about that, but there's always something to keep you engaged. And the action is very intelligent. It's not just like this steady 50 FPS movement that Illumination Animation like tries to engage you with, where everything's always moving at the same pace. This has punctuation. It has staccato. And um, Daniel, as an action aficionado, I, I just want to know what how you feel about, about the action of this movie, because I, I had a great time with that particular part of the movie. You were referencing this in comparison to the Minions. I think in in my filmmaking terms, describing the animation styles to people, the Minions animation isn't done with deliberation, but the Sea Beast is. The animation in the Sea Beast reminds me a lot of this one obscure animated movie that has actually stuck with me a lot. It's Sinbad, Voyage of the Seven Seas, or Legend of the Seven Seas. Ooh, that's a deep cut. It's a deep cut. It... But it's such a good, it has a similar character in it, similar main character. There's, but there is a fluidity to the action. There is a deliberateness to the movement. And, and that applies here. Um, without giving away too many details of the plot, Jacob is one of the hunters aboard the ship. And he's one of the more competent hunters. And in every action sequence, his last minute saves his trying to save crew members that are flailing and lives are in danger. And oh crap, that box of explosives is all about to fall into the lake I gotta, or the ocean. I gotta grab it at the last moment. You don't ever feel like he's hyper-competent. You just feel like his skills are barely holding everything together. Like yes. those last-minute saves, if he wasn't there, they would be in a far worse place. So not only are you getting uh, good dramatic action, you're also getting a raising of the stakes because... You're like, oh man, if, if they lose him or if something bad happens to him, how's the crew going to survive? Oh, definitely. That's a that's a really good way of putting it. Just barely scraping by that sort of Flynn Rider swashbuckly kind of feeling where he's just like, yeah. by the skin of his teeth, it's it's delicious. By setting it in the ocean on a ship, like Flynn Rider's great. And for those of you who don't know, he's from Tangled, which is one of Disney's better, more recent animated movies. Certainly yeah. one of their better, more recent princess animated movies. Yes, yes. If you want to call it that. But Flynn Rider is more of a swagger kind of, hey, you know, I've got it all together. I've got a plan. I'll figure it out. Jacob's not that at all. He's just very much like, listen, I'm not using my skills to show off. I'm not using them to win anyone over. I'm just trying to survive. When they're on the mainland in, in a scene, like he doesn't, he's not very showy. He's just kind of drinking whatever root beer they've got. And uh, I think it's real alcohol. I think there's real alcohol oh no, and real sure. cussing in this movie for sure. Oh, oh, there's definitely real alcohol. I just, you know, for, for the podcast, I wanted to, and <laughs> oh, I, sorry, sorry. Could have been, could have been ale, could have been whiskey. I don't know, but I, I was just calling it root beer as a sarcastic blanket term. <laughs> <laughs> it was fascinating though to see some things like that like there's a cuss or two in there and there's some alcohol mm. there's a hip flask involved uh and it's like whoa this is um not what i'm used to but you know it's mm. really adds to the grit a little bit the guns and knives i guess you could say for a quote-unquote kids animated movie this does have a little bit of teeth to it it does it has a lot of teeth to it it has as many teeth 
as the red bluster has in this film, which is a lot. And they're very big and they're very pointy. Oh, yeah. um, speaking of sharpness and teeth, the character designs in this film are beautifully diverse oh, and sharp, I think is the word I want to point back to because they've have, they have an angularness to them, a sharpness mm. to them. A, um, I think of like a rock that has been um, like just recently thrown into the water. And so it hasn't been smoothed over by time and water and mm. erosion. Um, just that jaggedness to it that really um, carves out a good silhouette in the frame. And it just, to me, that's the kind of character design that, that appeals to me. I'm, I'm citing Atlantis, the lost uh, kingdom, lost empire, lost city. Lost empire. Thank you. Uh, I love the angular character designs in that movie. I feel like this this film encompasses that uh, pretty well and, and takes its own twists to it. But also the character designs are distinct and diverse in a way that I I really enjoy them in a in a treasure planety sort of way where you've got like different positions this does, on this does vibe with treasure planet. Yeah, I was gonna say like I think Simbad is a really good equation, like a good thing to cite when talking about this movie. I would say Sinbad, Treasure Planet, and How to Train Your Dragon are like my top three yeah. movies that I would compare this to in terms of vibe. It, and it just, yeah. it's it's a good time because all three of those movies I, I personally really enjoy. I think Sinbad is one of the messier of those three, but it's it's a good time. Um, but yeah, the character designs are great. The creature designs are interesting, basing a lot of the sea creatures on different animals. Um one of them is based on what I could see was like a, a leopard seal, like from the Antarctic. But in addition to like really solid character and creature design, the set and prop and clothing design in this film has some really great subtle world building to it. Um, I'm talking about like the king and queen in this movie. They have like bits of like bone and shells on them and like their Ooh. crowns kind of look like coral and like the leather of the eye patch of one of the characters looks like it came from a creature it was just like cut right off of the hide of a sea beast there's a lot of really cool subtle nods to this culture is built around hunting and killing sea beasts and that's awesome and you can see it everywhere it's not just generic pirate flavor it's specifically sea beast flavored and that flavor is delicious i would say it's Cookies and cream Oreo, maybe with uh, some salted caramel sprinkled in. That would be the flavor I would describe it as. Yeah, I agree. I something that I hmm, something that oh, I really don't want to say this. Something that I prefer about Illumination's character whoa. design. Whoa, 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 whoa! Hold on now. Whoa. You know what? I'm not going to go down the route. Daniel, what did it. you just say? No, say it again, actually. Say it again. I want to hear your whole sentence. It's going to be really hard for me to get this out. Something I prefer about Illumination's character design, or at least <laughs> admire in a... Look, Illumination's character design and animation style is cartoonish. It is hyper-exaggerated. But I do like how they play with scale. Some characters feel incredibly imposing. Uh, but the problem is when you do that too much, it comes across as a cartoon and comes across as overly stylized, which is illumination to a T. And I think the Sea Beast is really just everything I liked about... every Everything I preferred about Illumination's animation You almost style, said you but, liked Illumination, Daniel. Oh, I Are you hearing like yourself right now? Listen... The only thing I liked about Illumination was Despicable Me, the first one. Everything else after that was cancer because it has spread and grown since. So I think cancer is a perfect description for Illumination. But anyway, the things that I said, huh, they could do something with that has been refined, polished, and masterfully improved upon in this movie. The characters are exaggerated, but they aren't what I would call a cartoonish exaggeration. They are reasonably exaggerated for the creative context of that specific art style they're going for. Some art styles with characters that are a bit more angular uh, 
comes across as jarring when the main characters look relatively handsome or relatively good looking. Yeah. And yet somehow, though I found our main characters to be good looking, uh, I they seem to still fit in the world. They didn't seem out of proportion or out of place. And that is a huge testament to the craft here. And you're right about the silhouettes, James. Like, you can just blink. If you flashed one, one of the many characters on screen briefly, I'd instantly know who that is. I may not know their name, but I would definitely know, oh yeah, that's, you know, that, that's the person that does this in the story, or that's the person that does this. Uh, even characters that only have a few lines of dialogue you know, I know, I know instantly some of the, the, the crew members on the ship there. It's, it's unreal how, how recognizable they can be without yeah. them even feeling like they're trying to make them recognizable. I, I especially really enjoy, I enjoy Captain Crow's design. I enjoy Sarah, the first mate's design. And then also the, um, the kind of Irish looking woman calling out orders on the lower yeah. deck. She was one of the people that I would say is recognizable. Yeah, just really, really sharp design in in a literal sense and in a figurative sense, really sharp uh, and a delight to watch. Every single one of them works well as a character, but also as an action figure. Um, All of these characters, I feel like, are capable for action, and I think that's the kind of the line I would draw between the designs here and the designs in Illumination movies, where it's like, I can't see this guy doing like an action sequence, and then they do, and it's like, that looks weird. That's um, true. An example, I think, that all before I before we dive into spoilers here, mm. an example I can cite is the Woodsman from Hoodwinked. Uh, big throwback. He's his feet yeah. and legs are like bricks, and like whenever you see him run, it looks really awkward. Partially because they were on a shoestring budget, but he's right. just an example of like where the body type does not complement action well. There was even a whole tap dancing sequence that the woodsman had originally in Hoodwinked, but they cut it because it just looked too weird. He tap dances during a song and it's like, no. My final thoughts on this movie. Um, When I was little, little baby Daniel, he loved dinosaurs. And I'm going to say that with a caveat here because big Daniel, big adult man Daniel still loves dinosaurs a lot. There's something about big things that no one knows a lot about that I just, it just gets me. And this yeah. really tapped into that for me. And there are some scenes where I'm like, okay, so this is a part of the movie where we're not going to see a lot of, and then they're like, nope, here's another big one. And I'm like, oh, cool. You Yay. know, it was like, it was awesome. So I had a great time with this. And the fact that this was a well-crafted film just allowed me to really sink into that even more. I, I felt safer with this movie. This movie isn't a safe movie, but this this movie makes me feel safe. I was like, yeah, no, I can... I could trust the people here. This is great. Uh, and it it's not going to be groundbreaking. I think this might be an underrated gem because not a lot of people are talking about this movie. This yeah. might even someday be a cult classic. But for now, I'm going to call it out and say this was well done. And the voice actors, which I didn't know who they were until after I finished watching the movie. But Carl Urban, Carl Yay! Urban. Amazing. Uh, and Jared Harris, which I got to say, Jared Harris is in Sherlock Holmes, a game of shadows. Mm. And he does what I still think is the definitive cinematic portrayal of Moriarty. Yes. He did an incredible job and he does an amazing performance as Captain Crow. One of my favorite characters in this movie, please watch this movie. It's fun. Uh, I think it's family friendly as long as you take a look briefly at, I think the IMDB parent guide. It is uh, rated PG, even though it's on Netflix, it does have a rating. It's PG, so you can see it with the kiddos, and I think it's fun to talk about and uh, digest as a family. No pun intended. Oof. So really quickly, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and rate it. Uh, I would say though the third act was disappointing, the ride, be it Minions Two or be it just me having a really sad film life. Uh, the exhilarating ride in the first and parts of the second act yeah, were really kind of helped balance it out. So I'm a little torn right now. But I'm going to say in the ballpark of three and a half to four stars. Um, I was going to say 3.75 because oh, we don't rate out of 10 
And I would say my gut says seven and a half out of 10, but we rate on five. So 3.75. It's a strong yeah. seven or a strong three. Sorry. Three yes. And a half. I would say a strong three as well. I want it to be a four, but that third act, man, that's a third of your movie. And that's the final note you're ending on. Yeah. That's something you saw with, and this is a shameless plug, Kubo and the Two Strings. If it weren't for that final act, I would have said it's the perfect animated movie. Yeah. I really would have. I have never liked an animated movie that strongly in a long time. Uh, so the third act is vitally important. If you're going to screw up, screw up in the beginning because the third act is what matters. Well, let's go ahead and dive into our spoiler review, shall we? Want to join the conversation? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Casually Critical Podcast to get the inside scoop on future episodes. Feel free to message us on either platform to join in the casual correspondence or provide feedback on the show. Now it's time to dive into our spoiler review. So James, I was editing our casual correspondence review, which just dropped last week. And yeah. uh, one of the questions that was brought up was the, to the effect of, you know, animation and anime, what are the qualities that make them excellent and how do they differ? And in it, you were talking about how animated movies need to break away from tropes and anime movies need to embrace the tropes. And some of the tropes you talked about are a strong, independent princess and a cute animal companion. This movie has two, both of those in it. I don't know about a princess, but definitely most of that one trope. So right out of the gate, I'm really just curious, straight talk, how did this movie do with tropes? I think that the way that this movie packages those tropes is a lot better than I've seen most. Uh, mm. Maisie being our main protagonist, uh, or one of our protagonists, I think is pretty well done. Um, she has a lot of flaws. She makes a lot of mistakes. And there are some things thematic uh, near the end of the movie regarding what she says to everybody and how she talks about history and things um, that I have a problem with on a grand scale with some children's media, and I'll get on that later. But Blue, the animal companion, and Red are both done uh, in very tasteful ways. Blue mm. is not obnoxious, he's not a screen stealer, and Red is not another toothless. I really was waiting for Red to be another toothless, but Red is still a wild beast that will defend herself and will go crazy on, like, Captain Crow if she needs to. Go and, ham like, on those Demogorgons. She will go ham on them Demogorgons, i.e. <laughs> Steve Harrington. But, um, <laughs> but they, they stand apart from other animal companion characters, and I think Maisie, I think Maisie is one of those better, strong, independent, quote-unquote strong, independent female characters. One scene that I will cite really quick is while they were land, while they weren't landlocked, while they were stuck on an island uh, and their rowboat had a hole in it, um, they were hiding in a giant conch shell and Jacob was going out to look for food and Maisie said, please come back soon. And then as the camera was fading out, she unsheathed her knife and set it on her lap. Mm. And to me that told, well, subtly to me that she is very afraid and she's not afraid to cut a fella, but yeah. um, she has feelings and can be afraid of things, and that's okay for a strong female character to be afraid of things. So, yeah. bravo for realistically handling this character. Daniel, I know you often have a soapbox about independent female action characters. What did you think about Maisie? The fact that I was rarely, if ever, annoyed at Maisie is is a miracle to behold. I wish that it wasn't a miracle. <laughs> um, I saw the trailer, James, you showed me, and I was a little wary. I was like, uh-oh, oh no. She's gonna be a strong, independent person who always gets her way, and she's never wrong. And uh, she's proven wrong pretty early on when she learns, oh, not all monsters are bad, and then I guess she's never wrong again. But the plot never, the plot never leaves us leaves room for that to be a possibility. If that makes sense, there's a lot more margin the plot gives her. How do I say this? They write around 
she's justifiably in the plot. The plot is not justifiably wrapped around her, if that makes sense. If yeah. the plot is the sun, she revolves around the plot. The plot does not revolve around Maisie. So kudos to you, movie. Um, I'm the same way with the animal companions with blue, red. I have my own thoughts about the whole thematic content. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, oh my gosh, are they really going the route of man bad, nature good? And they did. And I was like, okay, all right. Yep. Uh, which I kind of wish wasn't the case, but we'll talk more about how they could have improved on that. Uh, Blue, I actually really enjoyed. He's kind of a improvement on, I think, Mei Mei, the chicken from Moana. Oh, Hey Hey. Which, Hey Hey, which, um, by the way, same director. So there's that. Yeah, it's got the same like googly eye effect that Hey Hey had. Like every time yeah. he walks, his eyes kind of jostle a little bit and it's fun. They're kind of yeah. loose in there. With Blue. I just love Maisie just holding him up to Jacob and Blue's just like looks at him kind of quickly <laughs> and then just licks his chops like <laughs> and just just kind of sits. And the first thing Jacob does is grab him by the head and chuck him into the jungle. I was like, oh, good. Yeah. Like they're not afraid to punish Blue for being alive. And then they right. never did that again. And I was kind of disappointed. But <laughs> So James, I guess I just kind of touched on it. But the, the thematic content, I, I feel like that's a... Uh, I feel like that's an elephant in the room we need to address. We do. So I'm curious to know if you wouldn't mind starting us off. What bothered you about the content or uh, how could it have been done better? I could see the hesitation on your face. Gosh, dang it, Daniel. It's just, it's disappointing. I don't want to say sad because I realized I've been saying sad a lot on the podcast and I want our audience to know that I'm okay. I'm happy with my life. I'm not sad. This movie actually really lifted my spirits. The issue I have with the themes of this movie is that, first of all, the humanity bad thing is pretty commonplace. The way that it's packaged in terms of world building is pretty interesting, but there wasn't a whole lot of lead up to it. And here, I'll, I'll say this, because I know you have a little bit more to say about leading up to it. I will say the first 30 minutes of The Sea Beast, some of the finest animation I've seen in a long time. Yeah. You're with this competent cast of adult, essentially pirates, but morally okay pirates. And they're doing really cool stuff and there's great action sequences. And we get all of this subtlety about Captain Crow and about Jacob and about Sarah and these, these the crew. Mm. And... They all get along great, and we still have a pretty good plot going. They're hunting down the red bluster, and I thought that's what the movie was going to be, and Maisie was going to be a tag-along. So you get what, you're, what you paid for, which is $0, or I guess $15 a month or something. I don't know what Netflix is. You Worth get what it. you paid for in the first 30 minutes. Yeah. Once the moral complexity of revisionist history comes into play, we are not rewarded as an audience for seeing the gray amidst the black and white. The mm -hmm. action sequences are less engaging and not as nuanced and not as fun as they were in a world where everything was black and white and men were good and monsters were bad. Yeah. I felt like I was being punished for seeing the real, like behind the curtain, that the war was started by the king and queen, that the monsters were bad, and that we need to fix that. It was just like, okay, let's get to work, I guess, on fixing this. Time to do some civil duty. Uh, it's just yeah. kind of boring. In a fantasy world, I want the action to be just as interesting, even whenever it's not humanity good, monsters bad, and humanity fighting monsters. You know what I'm saying? I, I get exactly what you're saying. You worded my thoughts really well when you talk about feeling punished. It's like, here's what I came for. I came for big monsters fighting men against impossible odds and feats of bravery. And I felt like I was punished for that. Like, oh, you wanted to see the monsters get killed, didn't you? Yeah. You're the monster. Yeah. And I was like, I I'm sorry. I, I, I like big monster go boom. I, I, I watch... <laughs> Pacific Rim and I loved it in terms of that <laughs> sick morbid 
fantasy of a massive iron robot just trying to destroy a massive monster, you know? And this movie's like, oh, you liked that, didn't you? You liked seeing that monster's eye roll back up into its skull as it lay dying, bloated on top of the ocean's surface, didn't You're you? You're some kind you of perv, it. aren't you? Some kind of perv. <laughs> That's a Hunt for the Wilder People reference for those you of you that don't get it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I felt punished. And from a, I, I want to take this from a different perspective because James, you're talking about the animation. For me, what stood out in the first 30 minutes was the world building. They employ oh, yeah. all sorts of different devices. With Maisie, you know, she's in this orphanage and then she escapes. And they're like, yeah, so you're not here for the orphanage. So this one scene's really all you get of it. And I'm like, great you know, like, <laughs> let's get out of here let's get out of here and they're like yeah screw this place and i'm like yeah <laughs> i'm like wait is she gonna get caught and then they're like nope and i'm like awesome <laughs> <laughs> and uh captain crow my favorite character i thought he was gonna die just straight up mm-hmm. they fade to black and i was like oh shoot like this is the motivation for jacob this is how like you said james i thought the whole plot revolved around finding the red snapper and destroying it and for Maisie, it would be a coming-of-age story of how she's headstrong and confident like Jacob was, but she's unseasoned, untempered by the experience and seeing the horrors. And then they changed that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. With the third act, I want to be clear, I don't hate this movie. I, I think this is an almost final draft. I feel yes. like there's a few housekeeping things. They have the world set up. They have the oh, characters yeah. set up. You don't need to change a lot to really clean up the problems that this movie has. The moral of, oh, every book I've been reading has been by the king and queen, which have propagated this war for whatever reason. I, I kind of wrestled with that for a little bit. And I think what you're saying, James, about being punished, I think that is part of it. From a mechanical standpoint, from a story standpoint, we got the setup. Like The books have been set up and reinforced throughout. But we never got clarity. No. We were just said, these are the books. Oh, they're written by the king and queen. Okay, king and queen, bad. And I'm like, you could have easily made a scene where we're shown why the king and queen are doing this, why they're bad. And the thing that I don't like is it comes down to the whole court of public opinion where we're told limited information. We don't even have context. We don't know why the king and queen did this. We know that we've lost so many people at sea. Maybe the king and queen wanted to expand the empire or see a voyage beyond the sea, and they were sending ships, and they were all massacred by monsters who thought the ships were invading their land. Maybe the king and queen were like, man, this is a real problem, and we're terrified, and out of that fear, we want to protect our own. Not every... Rich person is a corrupt, ruthless tyrant. We talked about this in our casual correspondence review. Yeah. And I'm not trying to justify them, but what I am saying is I'm calling them out for what they are, which is two-dimensional cardboard cutouts of characters. And when you do some thinking about the world building, it really doesn't add up where it's like the movie, all the movie has told me, all the movie has told me is the king and queen have authority and the king and queen have influenced all the literature on the hunters. If the king and queen we're so hell-bent on propagating hunters being heroes and all that, then why were they trying to kill off the hunters? Why are they trying to axe them off and defy their own literature about praising them as heroes? Mm. What's the point of hunting and killing monsters? That's an expensive venture. Was it a resource the monsters had? We're not told that. Is it a treasure the monsters are guarding? We're not told that. Is it a land that the monster sea is in between? We're not told that. All we're told is, yeah, monarchy bad, big wild animals good. And I'm like, no, that's, I'm sorry. That's not enough. There has to be more. You you set something up, you paid it off kind of, but you never reinforced it. And so that's where I I was frustrated by. And it's like, if that's the message you want to tell, you need to work at telling it. Like you said, there's a, this is a black and white world. This is a very clear cut universe that this movie is set in and when you add moral complexity in the third act that's not heart one of the articles i was reading about this movie is that at the end there's a lot of heart and i said no there's not there's a lot of political themes a lot of stoking the fires 
but there isn't a lot of heart. There, it's kind of the opposite. There's a lot of intellectual stuff at the end, but there's not a lot of heart to it. What? How does this personally affect Maisie? How does this personally affect Jacob? Yeah, they have their entire lives as hunters, but what did they lose because of this? Nothing. The public approved of them. The king and queen were overthrown socially. They lost nothing because of this. They took a stand, and they had a big red monster, so if anyone defied them, they could just wipe them out. Yep. That's how I see it. So, call me cruel, but if I was going to go that route, maybe I'd just have them shunned from the entire country. King and queen said, you're not welcome here, and the people are confused and a little like you just come in here and talk about all the books being bad. Well, screw you. Get out of here. You know? Yeah. Anyway, that's my, uh, my soapbox. But if you're going to tell a theme, you got to set it up. You got to do that right. You can't just twist the plot on us, which is a shame because they twist the plot really well with Captain Crow. Yes. I'm, I'm going to change the topic, said James. If you wanted to weigh in on the third act, you can. But I'll say, I'll say a few quick things. Okay. One is that they teased at some complexity within the king and queen. They exchanged this kind of wary glance whenever mm. Captain Crow brings the, the red bluster back. Uh, and I feel like there's something going on there, but they don't touch on it, and it drives mm. me bonkers. Um, another thing. Mm. They set up the king and queen and the three bridges... The, the royal city, Three Bridges, pretty well. It looks really cool. There's a big skeleton of a sea beast hanging over their throne. What if the throne room was built out of the bones of sea creatures? What if the ivory of sea beasts was a valuable thing? Then we would have a better reason for why they wanted to do what they do. But we don't get to see that. And instead we get Maisie looking through all the books on the bookshelves. All the books that were on the ship, by the way, which doesn't make sense because Jacob didn't know what happened in the books or how people were described in the books. But right. anyway, she finds the books on the ship that people apparently didn't know about. She sees the king's seal on all of them. Could we have shown the king's seal in the first act, maybe lingered on it a little bit longer, or had Maisie say something about the king, like the official king's press, whenever she you know puts the book away? Yeah. That could, those little touches could have been enough to make things feel a little more built up to. Um, but at the end of the day, the things it was building up to were not great. Um, like you said, the third act is, is without consequence. And um, the idea of everyone listening to this child and saying, we should hear what she has to say and believe everything she says... It touches on something that it's in some children's media that I don't really appreciate. And that being, children are the only voice of reason. Childhood is idealized. Mm. Um, always listen to the child. They're right. The parents yeah. in horror movies, they don't listen. The kids in fantasy movies, they always think out of the box and have the right ideas. They always have their heads screwed on straight. It's the adulthood that we need to fight against. Right. And that's why I like things like Series of Unfortunate Events, where that's ticked played up to an 11 where it's like the adults are like we're snooty villains and the kids are like we're, we're just totally normal people okay yeah i like it's that hilarious. but in in other children's media it always feels like the child is being put on a pedestal and my wife sarah is a a secondary school teacher and she sees what these kids are being turned into because of the things that they're consuming they don't listen to authority mm. They don't care about authority. They think they're the boss in their lives because of all of these stories that are being told to them. Also because their home lives are not so great, and so they've had to fend for themselves. But there are also narratives in film and animation and television that are influencing these things. So we can't make Maisie the only voice of reason. And we can't strip all the competence away from Jacob in the second and third act. I, I no. did not appreciate that. Yeah, he became an idiot. I'm like, yeah. and the other thing too is that message that, I don't know, I feel like there's, maybe I'm paranoid, but I feel like there's an underlying theme of pacifism where it's like, violence isn't the answer. Jacob will reach for that spear, but he'll never touch it. And when he does, it's only to try and break it on his leg, which is going to hurt tremendously. And he'll try it again because apparently he's stupid 
and then he's going to try it a third time. But it's funny because he's suffering. And it's like you were saying, James, Maisie suddenly becomes this prophetic voice for the beasts. Yeah. Jacob does his best to communicate with the beasts to no effect. And you know what? If you want a movie that talks about reconciliation between two different groups of people or people and creatures, skip Frozen 2 and go yeah. watch the first and the second How to Train Your Dragon. Okay. Because the first How to Train Your Dragon and this isn't really spoilers, this is just plot points, but dragons are terrifying. They burn people and destroy things, and later we learn there's a reason they do that, but Hiccup, when he's first with Toothless, Toothless is terrifying. He's trying to hurt Hiccup, because Hiccup ripped off a part of his tail. And so Toothless, whether by Stockholm Syndrome or necessity, you know, tries this and Hiccup eventually makes him a prosthetic wing, which is nice, but that mm -hmm. doesn't win over Toothless. Toothless tries to fly away and it's terrifying because Hiccup, Hiccup can't control it and his invention hasn't been battle tested and it kind of malfunctions. So they both need each other. And, it, and then with Hiccup's dad, Stoic, who hates dragons, you know, that he makes wrong choices and he pays the price for that. And in the second How to Train Your Dragon, a big plot point that I'm not going to spoil, there's a moment where that reconciliation is strained. But it is less to do with, oh, we hate dragons again. And it's more to do with, you hurt me, even if you didn't mean to. Yeah. And with this movie, The Sea Beast... They try at first, it seems like, oh, all monsters are inherently not so bad if you just leave them alone. But then there's a big sea crab that emerges randomly and tries to kill them. And I'm like, okay, cool. We get some more monster action. But then that's gone and done with. And we're never we're never really here from that again. Uh, and I'm kind of sick of it. I'm sick of it. I don't know it. For for a movie like The Sea Beast that does so many simple things well, do this better. Do this better. It actually kind of gear shifts from from pirate swashbuckly movie into E.T., where it's like, I have this mm. friendly monster and we need to keep it safe. No, you don't understand. I've never seen E.T., by the way. I'm just talking about E.T. like movies. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think the touching on the the idea of revisionist history in a children's movie, I think is really interesting. And I think they really could have nailed it on the head if they had changed a few things. So good on them for taking some risks and trying to talk about revisionist history and trying to talk about the way history is taught to our kids in the world and in America specifically, probably the, the probably all the guns were pointed right at America when writing this plot. Oh, yeah. I thought that was interesting. It's just the execution that falls flat. And it becomes, it doesn't fit the mold that the movie had formed. Mm. I wanted the first 30 minutes of the movie again. Yeah. With all the action and the swashbuckling and the interesting characters. And How the subtlety. We, and the subtlety and the relationships. How can we make that new in this, in this different world where sea beasts and men are on equal footing, some good, some bad? I wanted to talk about the third act because I knew it was going to be a big talking point that both of us wanted to discuss. Um, but let's, I don't want to end our review on this, honestly, because no, we both like this movie. <laughs> yes. Captain Crow is strong throughout. And for whatever reason, as over the top and preachy as the third act can be, Captain Crow was still handled with a level of dignity and restraint where they were like, huh. His beliefs are challenged. He's never going to say it, but you can see it on his face, and that's all we're going to do. And I was like, oh, cool. Nice. Restraint. That's, I like that. Yeah. You know? And if they yeah, would have done anything beyond that, if they would have done anything beyond a simple facial gesture, it might have been too much, honestly, mm -hmm. given the character of Captain Crow, given how stalwart he was and his fiery temper. Uh, 
but he I'm shocked because how to say this there are moments in the movie where I, I thought he was going to be evil and he wasn't like he goes down this path he you know gets that secret weapon which by the way uh, I think from matron is her name yeah and gets the secret weapon from her she says the cost will be everything that never happens again she's never brought up again and at first, like, I, I love the atmosphere. I loved everything about her. Like when he says, we're turning and setting course for this, and his crew are very opposed to it. But they go, Matron gives him the weapon. She says it'll cost him everything. I guess. Like, he did lose everything, but it was for the better of society, so not a bad thing. Yeah, he made a great decision. In, in the Good eyes job. of the story, he made a great decision on buying um, God, <laughs> God's hand. God's yeah. hand and stabbing, stabbing a monster with God's hand and saying, uh, this, this creature is mine now. I'm going to tow it like cargo. But even when they get red and even when Maisie is knocked unconscious, uh, the fact that he doesn't interrogate both of them and instead he just sits down and, you know, talks to Jacob and even listens when Jacob's telling him a story. And when Captain yeah. Crow retorts back to Jacob, he doesn't retort back revealing, oh, he's a narrow-minded bigot who just wants to kill monsters. Instead, he's like, no, 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 they killed our people, and reconciling with them is not going to change the hundreds of deaths that happened, you know? And yeah. we heard a story, you know, the monarch and everyone on it, oh, a nice world-building thing they keep reinforcing. Mm -hmm. uh, so when he retorts, it's very realistic, and I was like, shoot, like... He's not even trying to yell at Jacob. He's not trying to say, what the heck's wrong with you for loving the sea beast? He even acknowledges it. He said, you know what? It was a miraculous thing that happened to you, but that doesn't change things. You know, like he acknowledges it. He yeah. says straight up, like, I believe you. I believe that what you're saying is true, that these monsters aren't all bad, but they're also beasts and they did these terrible things. And I was like, Captain Crow, stop. I might be rooting for you. <laughs> I know. There's so many reasons to root for this guy. Like in the first act, like this guy is supposed to be like a twist villain or something, right? He's yeah. not. He's not a twist villain. In the first act, after all the action sequences, saving the other ship from, a, from another sea beast, the captain turns to Jacob and says, hey, because of you, I had a change of heart and I went to help these people instead of chasing my vengeance. Yeah. Thank you for keeping me in check. When Jacob leaves, what happens? The captain's not in check anymore, and he goes after yeah. his vengeance. He's That's, literally a loose cannon. Yeah, that is the rule of the world, and he's abiding by that rule. And I love that. It's, it's so clearly set up, unlike That's other true. parts of the story. It's, there's so <laughs> much beautiful... It's like poetry, it rhymes. There's, like, even the, like, what does Jacob do to the captain? He reminds him of the code. Keeps him accountable. What happens? What's the decision the captain makes when Jacob's gone? He violates the code. He says the only code I follow is mine. And goes to Matron. Gets the hand of God and, you know, takes over the sea beast. And I thought he was going to die off in the first scene to give Jacob motivation. I wouldn't be surprised if in an earlier draft he did die to give Jacob motivation. But what they did was they established, okay, he's this badass hunter who knows beasts kills them but he's also like he gets caught up in the moment sometimes but there's a great character beneath it all and when the fighting's gone when the adrenaline rush has worn off he's caring about his future and what's cool and again they show they don't tell but that moment where he dies well almost dies and then is saved wakes up on the ship with his crew you can tell that that near-death experience really changed something in him. Yeah. Now he's thinking about his legacy. He's thinking about, you know, I pursued this red snapper for a long time, and my time's almost up. And what do I do once the red snapper's dead, you know? Captain Crow would be if Prince Hans was naturally ingrained in the plot of Frozen and had sufficient development. And because, didn't exist in a vacuum. Yeah, because I would say... He's a twist villain, but not in the way that I think you were describing, James, because you said he wasn't. I think he's like an oyster villain in the sense that on the surface, you're like, okay, he's a character. And then it opens up and you're like, oh, as the plot naturally opens up more and more, you're like, 
oh, that isn't even surprising now that I think about it. It's just natural. Right. It just kind of happened. It's written in the code. You know, it's in yeah. his character design. His character design is a villain's character design. And you start to feel for him as a hero in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, so it's just like such a natural shift whenever he changes. And I really appreciate that, that about him. That's yeah. why he's probably my favorite character too. Yeah. Um, my second favorite character for design alone is probably the, uh, the second mate or whatever, whatever her position was. Oh, the, the Irish lady. lady. The guns. Oh no, you're talking about the Irish lady. I mean, Sarah was pretty awesome too. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. She was amazing as well. She but, great. uh, um, all, most of these characters are side characters, right? But, uh, I like, I like her. And then my third favorite character is probably the, the one scene carriage driver that just says, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's just fun. I don't know. Sometimes the dialogue in this feels very minimalist. Like it just says all it needs to say and then drops the mic. Like the third act, the one thing in the third act that had a lot of craft in it was when Sarah Sharp throws Maisie into, locks her in essentially the cabin. Ironically, yeah. just bef- after that, it's my least favorite scene where Blue, and this is the only time in the whole movie, Blue actually does something sentient and actually <laughs> just rips off the window cover. Anyway, uh, but with Sarah Sharp, Sarah Sharp throws her into their room and is about to lock the door. And then Maisie, in her disgust, says Sarah Sharp is the most loyal first mate. And that's it. And that was established from the beginning mm-hmm. as something written in the books, which is true. But now, just saying that, Sarah Sharp has this look on her face and shuts the door. And I'm like, mic drop. That's all that's you good. needed to say. And the writers knew that's all they needed to say. And they left it alone. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. Guys, that's it. Thank you for listening. We're Daniel and James. And you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. And now, finally, you can hopefully unleash your inner beast. (laughs) 